It's good to be together. Uh, we are in the book of Acts, chapter 17, so if we would all begin to make our way there. Uh, we got some excitement out there. Uh, if you do not have a Bible, uh, there's one, there should be one in the seat in front of you or right near you. If you don't own one and, and you want that one, take it with you. Um, it's important that we all have our own scriptures um, to be looking at, not just on a Sunday morning when we gather, but daily. And so today we're going to be in Acts 17. If you are going to use one of those Bibles in the chairs, you'll see the page numbers are listed there to sort of assist you um, with that. Let's uh, pray together. Father, we are really, really appreciative, Lord, to have uh, a place where we can gather the technology to be able to gather, Lord, to have the Word of God to be able to consider. And Lord, even in saying that, uh, I certainly don't want to give the impression that we, we're going to come, think about it, and decide if we like it or not, but Father, we want to sit under it and receive from you what it is that you have for us. So we ask for you to bless your word. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would teach each one of us. And, and Father, perhaps there's some with us this morning that don't yet know Christ. Lord, would you open up their hearts to believe today, revealing your need, revealing the truth of your word, cutting to the deepest place, and bringing them to the place of salvation. Lord, I agree with Josh, Lord, that all of those distractions that could potentially hinder what it is you want to have for us today. But we want to lay them aside, and we ask for your help in doing so. Lord, that we might hear from you. So bless your holy word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in Acts 17. Acts 17, you recall, is the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. I'll remind you that journey began in the city, among other places, in the city of Philippi. As they were kind of making their way, they, they crossed over into the region of Macedonia, and they spent a good deal of time in that city of Philippi, and they, they had a little bit of success there. From Philippi, they took off, and they went to, as we saw last week, the cities of Thessalonica and the city of Berea. And as was Paul's custom, when he went into a community, if there were, was a Jewish population in that community, he sought them out, he found them. And he wanted to go to them, he wanted to teach them, he wanted to explain to them from their holy scriptures that Jesus, this fellow that 10 years earlier or so lived down in the area of Israel, that this was the long-promised Messiah. And he would explain that to them from their scriptures, pointing to, that, to the scriptures to do so. There in Thessalonica, there in the city of Berea, both of those locations uh, there was a positive response. People responded. People believed. Brothers were birthed, so to speak. He calls them the brethren there, or the brothers. A church was born in each one of those cities. You may also remember that their experience in Thessalonica, it, we might say it didn't end as well as maybe they would have liked, as uh, Paul was forced to kind of flee for his life. Remember, it said that, that there were a group of uh, unbelieving Jews that stirred up a crowd and they, they caused a, a ruckus of sorts. They raised up the rabble. And that, that forced Paul and Silas and Timothy, you know what, it's, maybe it's best we get out of here and leave the ministry there uh, to that church. And so they did that and they, they took off uh, and they headed to the city of Berea, 60 miles inland or so from Thessalonica, and there Paul again went to a synagogue. There again he began to explain to the people, teach the people. There again people responded, and a church was born in that city as well. And Paul said this, remember, verse, seven, verse 11 of chapter 17, he said, Now these Jews, the ones in Berea, were more noble than those in Thessalonica. And the reason was is because they received the word of God with eagerness but not with gullibility. They checked the scriptures to make sure those, those things Paul was saying about the Old Testament, to make sure those things were indeed true. And Paul was like, this is awesome. This is the exact kind of church that I wanted. I love it here in Berea. And I, I kind of ended our time together by kidding a little bit and just saying that one day after a, a long day of great ministry, Paul kind of went back, sat in his easy chair, put his feet up and just thought back, ah, oh, ministry is so good, so wonderful. I love Berea. Lord, I could live here the rest of my days. And then all of a sudden there was banging on the door and screaming out in the streets and a loud commotion started. And that's where we left off. And I told you not to read ahead so that you wouldn't, I wouldn't, you wouldn't ruin the surprise. So who read ahead? Okay, Jim Anderson. I can't get that guy under control. 
and so uh, let's pick up uh, where the banging in the street is going on. The commotion is, it says this. Now, when the Jews from Thessalonica, how far away was Thessalonica? I told you. It was 60 miles away. Would you, would you walk 60 miles or so to go cause another problem in another city? Eh, let him do what he wants to do. You know, but these guys were determined. Remember they said they were envious, the Jews were envious of Paul? That was the motivation of all of this, that they were envious of Paul. So they march 60 miles, they make their way to this city of Berea, and when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, same thing they did in Thessalonica, agitating and stirring up the crowds. I wrote a little note here. Really? You would go all that way just to cause more trouble there? But that's exactly what the Jews from Thessalonica sought to do. They heard the word of God was going forth in another city, that Paul was doing his thing there, and they decided to make their way there and cause the same sort of trouble that they did in Thessalonica. They weren't, they weren't satisfied with just simply forcing Paul out of Thessalonica. What they wanted to do was cause the same kind of trouble in the next locale, in the city there of Berea. And somehow word began to filter back 60 miles away to Thessalonica, and this contingency of Jews was prompted to go, and they did. And the opposition got so bad, look at verse 14, that the believers there in the city of Berea, they made that decision, look, we've got to get Paul out of here. It says in verse 14, then the brothers, that's the new church that was formed, then the brothers immediately, they sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. It's interesting to take note that Silas and Timothy remained while Paul took off. You remember when, when Paul and Silas and Timothy, when they left Philippi, they left Luke behind there to kind of continue to work with that new church, teach the people, get them grounded, Luke stayed there. Now they move on to the next city, which was Thessalonica, then on to Berea, uh, and, and Silas and Timothy are going to remain there as Paul's going to go on to the next locale. And so this is, if you're keeping track from the first missionary journey and the second missionary journey, this is the fifth time now that a, ci that a city, a fifth, the fifth city in which an envious group of people rose up and essentially chased Paul out of town. If you're keeping track, Poseidon, Antioch, Acts 13, Iconium, Acts 14, Lystra, Acts 14, Thessalonica, last week in Acts 17, and now this particular city. And so Paul goes into these cities, he's trying to do well, he's trying to do good, all that kind of stuff, and he's ch and being chased out of every city. But what's important for us to see is even with the difficulties, Paul's not deterred. Paul continues to go on. Just because ministry had its challenges, just because life had its challenges, did not mean that Paul was going to stop doing what it was that God was calling him to do, which was to go into these towns and to introduce Jesus to them. Now, that did, also, that did not mean, though, that Paul wasn't wise and perhaps even strategic about how he did what it was that God called him to do. And using some of that wisdom causes Paul, you know what, I'm going to move on. This whole crowd is stirred up by me in particular, and I'm going to leave Paul, um, Silas and Timothy behind, and then they can minister. Nobody really cares about them. No one's taking notice of them in this town, and I'll move on to another city. That's strategy there. And so Paul's not a fool. He's not just looking for problems necessarily, but he wants to do what God has called him to do. And so once more he's determined, he moves on, to the next city, and that's going to be the city of Athens. Now, let me just make this quick point before uh, we move on. Paul leaves Silas and Timothy to teach the new believers because Paul isn't of this mindset that I'm the only one that can teach. I'm the only one that can help these people. Lots of people have gifts. And Paul knew that Silas and Timothy also had the gift and the ability to teach the people there in that community. And so Paul gave them the opportunity to exercise their gift, and he went on to the next locale where he might advance the gospel there as well. Remember this about the Apostle Paul. His primary goal was not just evangelism. It wasn't just to go into some city, preach the gospel, and move on. It was discipleship. And so, yes, he has to get out of there quickly. He can't teach the people as much as he might have liked to, but Saul, or Silas and Timothy can, and they can further disciple these new believers in that particular community. 
And so look at verse 15. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. All right, so they wave goodbye. Paul waves goodbye to Silas and Timothy. He said, look, do what you got to do and, then, and get to me as soon as you can. All right, and I'm going to head to Athens. That's where you can find me. You've heard of Athens in history? Yes, you've probably studied it in eighth grade or something like that, ninth grade there. Didn't realize it would be found in your Bibles, but it is. Uh, that ancient great city continues to be uh, a city in the world today, the city of Athens. Let's read from 16 to 21. Give us the full picture. It says, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, it seems to me to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things, foreign things, to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. All right, so the, the full context there. Now, Athens, we'll go back and we'll talk a little about. Athens was one of the greatest cities of the ancient world. I'm sure we all know that. It's why you learned about it in eighth grade and things like that. One of the greatest cities of the ancient world. At this time of Paul's writings, it's about 200 years, maybe 300 years separated from when it was when the Greek empire was the greatest empire in the world. But even with that, it's still considered, it was at this time, still considered the intellectual capital of the world. Some people think it was the intellectual capital of all of history, was the city of Athens. Athens was the home of Aristotle in 350 BC, Plato, you've heard, in 425 BC, and Socrates in 400 BC. William Barclay, a commentator I enjoy, he said this, it was the greatest, what we might call today, university town in the world. And so it was the place that people would go to dialogue, and it was the thing to do in that particular town. I think we have a map, Kev? Look at that, it worked. We have a little map there. Red on our map, anybody recall? That was Philippi, very good. Blue? Thessalonica, excellent, I knew you knew it. The green one? Rhea. And what do you think the orange one is? That's the city of Athens. Notice how we're making our way toward uh, the sea there. This was a coastal city of sorts. Well, let's take the of sorts out. It was a coastal city, the city of Athens. And so Paul has left the green dot. He's gone here to the orange dot. He's left Berea and he's made his way to Athens. He's by himself because he left Silas and Timothy back there in the city of, Bel uh, of Berea. And... It seems, from a statement that Paul makes, it seems he's there in the city. It's a well-known city. He's probably heard about the city. Paul was a very educated man that he probably thought, well, I guess I should take in the sights of the city. I'll make my way around, see what's going on here. And he no doubt went to the Acropolis. You've probably heard of that. He went to the Parthenon. You know, today we have the Lincoln Memorial that looks a lot like uh, the Parthenon. He went to the ancient theaters, not movie theaters or things like that, but uh, stadiums of sorts, and he saw what was going on there. And they themselves were like magnificent feats of ancient architecture, and he would go and he would take all of this stuff in, observing it. But what really caught Paul's attention is revealed to us in verse 16, was how the city was full of idols. That's what provoked Paul. So he's not walking around and like, wow, this stuff's amazing. And he probably was impressed with some of the building that they had. Some of it's still standing today. After almost 2,500 years, some of that stuff. And I'm sure he was amazed by those things. But what really caught his attention was that the city was full of idols. It says in verse 16 that his spirit was provoked within him. Now, I get the impression that in Athens, Paul was planning to sort of hang low until Silas and Timothy came. But as he began to wander around, he just, he couldn't hang low. He saw these things, they provoked him, and he had to start to deal with them. 
he encountered the many, many idols, the temples to those idols that were there in Athens, and he was compelled to do something. He was compelled to say something. So Athens, it was not only the intellectual capital of the ancient world. In many ways, Athens was considered the spiritual capital of the ancient world as well, the secular ancient world as opposed to Jerusalem, for instance. There were over 3,000 altars and temples, over 3,000 altars and temples built to different deities uh, that were either discovered or written about in ancient Athens. So over 3,000 little statues or temples or tables, like altars of sorts that were there. It was said that there were more statues of the gods in Athens. I don't know if this is just hyperbole, but that there were more statues of the gods in Athens than in all of the rest of Greek put together, and Greece, I should say. And some said that in Athens, it was easier to meet a god than a man. Images or statues were everywhere in Athens. And not only representations of the gods of the Greeks, which maybe you studied in Greek literature or in English literature and things like that, but also of the other countries and empires that were around the world as well. And so there were statues to the gods of the, of the areas of Asia, of Egypt, of Rome. If you were a deity, you probably had a statue there in the area of, Greece, of Athens. Practically every false deity was worshipped. That was worshipped on the earth had a statue somewhere in Athens. Notice what Luke says. Luke writes that the city was full of, of idols. I think some versions say the city was given over to idols. Fool of idols is a nice translation because the word that is used is the word that we might use to describe a flood that has filled a city. You know, so you, you picture a city with 20 feet of water and just little rooftops that are popping out of it. That's the, the word that Luke was trying to use here to say this city was immersed in idolatry. It was full of idols. It was like a flood that had encompassed the entire city. And as Luke says, he points out, it provoked the spirit of the Apostle Paul. And so perhaps he was planning on not doing anything until the rest of the guys got there, but he realized, i got to do something. I'm curious, as I thought about this, what provokes my spirit? What provokes your spirit to say something or do something? What is it that moves you to action in the same way that Paul was moved to action here in this passage? What is it that causes you to say, you know, I need to speak up. I need to say something. I need to do something about this. Well, some people, they quiet, and then people start talking about sports teams, and well, let me tell you, and all of a sudden they jump in, and their sports affinity provokes them. I say some people, I'm talking about myself um, there. <laughs> some people, it's politics. You're quiet, you're not involved. The people at the next table start talking politics, and now all of a sudden you want to get involved, and it provokes you to do something or to say something. Some people love to share their thoughts on the generation that they are not. Those millennials, let me tell you. Those old people, 45-year-olds, let me tell you about them, and so on and so forth. And so these things stir us, and what is it that stirs you? And so if you went into a city that was full of idolatry or that was talking about this political idea and that political idea, what would stir you more? If they were talking about this sports team or that sports team, what would stir you more? For Paul, what stirred him was false religions. And what underlies those religions, man's effort to connect with the holy God and their inability to do so. For Paul, what moved him were the things of eternity. And I hope that can be said of us. I hope it, it can be said of me. At least I want it to be. And if, when I realize it's not as much as perhaps it should be, it becomes a matter of prayer, certainly. Well, what's going on in me? Why do I allow these other things to stir me more? So here's Paul. He's taking in the sights. It's one of the most beautiful cities of the ancient world. It's, uh, as far as human uh, in innovation and things like that and architecture and all that kind of stuff, it's certainly one of the most amazing things. But the thing that impressed Paul the most, or maybe properly that depressed Paul the most, was how far these people were from the God that loves them and sent his son 
to deal with their sin problem. I like the way William McDonald, he said it this way. He said, it was not that he valued marble statues less than the average person. Wow, that's amazing. But that he cared for living men more and their souls more. And so when the rest of the ancient world came and ob to observe these statues and temples, what Paul wanted to do was minister into their lives. And so stirred to action, rather than waiting for his opponents, or his companions, I mean, Paul went down and he began to speak with the people of the community. What did Paul typically do when he went to a new community? Look at verse 7. It tells us again he went to a synagogue. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So he went to the synagogue and explained to them from their scriptures about Jesus, just like he did everywhere else. But then in this case, we see he also went down to the marketplace, to the place where people would be, Gentiles primarily, not the Jews, but the Gentiles. And there it says he began to reason with them. What does Paul do? Paul goes where people are so that he can talk to them. He can reason with them. He can hear what, remember we said that reason is... The root of the word is the word dialogue. So we could have a dialogue with them, ask them questions, challenge them to think about what it is that they have just grabbed onto and believed so that they would consider Jesus. And in this university city, this was right up people's alley. All right, the guy wants to come and debate, he wants to come and talk and dialogue. Look at verse 21 for just a moment. It says, now all the, all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there they would spend all their time doing nothing but telling and hearing something new. That was the pastime in the city of Athens. The people loved going to the lectures and going to the debates and hearing a guy on the street corner like the Apostle Paul. And so, not surprisingly, verse 16, some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also conversed with Paul. I don't know how he did it, but they were in a street corner got up on a little tree stump or something or another or a rock. He got a little higher and he began to talk to the people. And people began to come around. And the Epicurean philosophers and the Stoic philosophers, they made their way over. And they began to listen to him and talk amongst themselves. And they, some, it seems like they're mocking in verse 18. What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, I don't know, it seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, Jesus and the resurrection, they say there. Now, let's talk about the Epicureans. The Epicureans... They were followers of a Greek philosopher named, what do you think, Epicurus. I don't know what you said, but I'm sure you were right. Uh, in 310 B.C., so about 300, almost 400 years, 350 years earlier, this philosopher, and he had his teachings, his ideas, continued to be popular. Now, Epicurus taught that the chief end of man was to attain the maximum amount of pleasure in life, and as much as possible, minimize the level of difficulty. Now, they weren't exactly hedonist. You know, they're just living on some island somewhere doing all sorts of things here. But the idea, the, the goal of life was to minimize the pain and uh, maximize the pleasure. They did not believe in a next life. So it's all about this life living in this particular life. You might summarize their teachings this way. Well, if it feels good and is good, do it. If not, avoid it. And that was the idea of the Epicureans in and of itself. Not a terrible thing, I guess. The second group, they were the Stoics. Now, the Stoics had a belief, you know, all these deities, that they were pantheist. And, and what that idea is, that concept is, is that everything was God, including each one of us as individuals. The pantheists, or the Stoics in particular, they believed that everything that happened was the will of the gods. And thus, you really shouldn't push back or fight against it because it's the will of the gods, and so you should just submit to it. And so what the Stoics believed was that wisdom lay in being free from any intense emotion or being moved either to joy or to grief or sadness. We, sometimes we describe a person as having a very stoic look on their face. That's the idea. No emotion. You don't want to play poker against these guys. You don't know if they got a good hand or a bad hand because there's no, nothing shows on their face. That was the Stoics. We might summarize theirs as, you know, just sort of grin and bear life. It is what it is. So for the Epicureans, they argued the goal of life is to enjoy life. 
For the Stoics, the goal of life is to endure life. But notice, none of them believed in a, a resurrection or a post-life or eternal life. So you have enjoy life, endure life, but no one's talking about eternal life until the Apostle Paul comes into town. And notice what Paul says there. It tells us at the end of verse 18, this is their assessment of what he's saying. He seems to be preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. And so their response is, all right, this is, this is new. We like to hear new things. Let's go listen to this particular guy. And then amongst themselves, they start trying to figure out, well, what is he saying? Notice it says there in verse 18, halfway through, that they call him a babbler. Now, that, that sounds a little bit derogatory. You know, he's a babbler. The, the word means a seed picker. And it describes like a bird that, you know, is like walking on the sidewalk, picking up little seeds and eating them. And, and the point seems to be what they're communicating is that this guy, I don't know, he's got a whole bunch of ideas from a lot of different places. From this philosopher, that philosopher, this philosopher, you know, and he has all these different ideas. He, he's not narrowed down to anything in particular. And so they referred to him as a babbler. That was kind of the one group. Now, the other group, they say, no, 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 he, I, I think I know what he's trying to get to. He's preaching about foreign deities. Two in particular is what they thought. He's preaching about a guy named Jesus, and then he's preaching about a guy or a gal named Resurrection. That's how they interpret it. Now, it's interesting to note the, the word resurrection in the Greek, which Paul would have been using, is the word anastasis. And so in a sense, what they're saying, well, I don't know, he's preaching about these two gods, Jesus and Anastasis, maybe a male god, a female god, it kind of sounds like that. Paul's like, not exactly, <laughs> you know, you're, you're close, but that's not exactly what I'm doing here. So they don't get it. They don't understand it. They're trying to figure it out. It seems to me he's preaching about these foreign deities. Notice this, though. Even in their assessment, he's preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. Even though they missed it, that's what they said he was talking about, which is the same thing he talked about in Berea and in Thessalonica and in Philippi and in Antioch. In every other city that he went to, Paul went and he preached about Jesus and the resurrection. Now, admittedly, here in Athens, he's going to have to run through it again because they didn't quite pick up what it was he was trying to teach. But at least they're not throwing rocks at him which has happened on a number of occasions to the Apostle Paul. Notice also in verse 19, not only are they not throwing rocks, they say, you know what? We have this place where everyone likes to talk. How would you like to be the main speaker this afternoon? And more particularly, the place was called the Areopagus. It says there in verse 19, and they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. Now, some of you may be looking at your Bibles and looking at me because your Bible doesn't say Areopagus. Maybe your Bible says Mars Hill. Anybody here have that? This guy does. Mars Hill. All right. Well, this guy. <laughs> we have one guy here that does. All right. Um, I notice in my Bible it uses the word Areopagus, but in the title, you know, the little thing that's not part of the original Bible, but put there by the publisher, it said Mars Hill. The reason why that is the case, Areopagus is the Greek form of Mars Hill. Eris was the Greek god of war. The Romans referred to that same deity as Mars. The root of the word there, Pagus, refers to a stronghold, a territory, a hill. And so the place was the stronghold of Eris, or according to the Romans, it was the hill of Mars, Mars Hill. All right, so we're talking about the same location here, Mars Hill, the Areopagus. Of greater significance of how it got its name is what it developed into. And it developed into the place where the professional philosophers would go, spend their time, notice verse 21, doing nothing except telling or hearing something new. And since this teaching of this new guy in town, Paul, was certainly something new, as verse 20 says, they invited Paul to come and speak. And so to the Areopagus, Paul went. Let's read about it, starting in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, he said, Men of Athens, I perceive, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, 
What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by, the, by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the, ba the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. And yet he is actually not far from any of us. Verse 28, for in him we live and we move and we have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising that man from the dead. Welcome to the Areopagus, says Paul. Uh, he stands out there and he, he challenges these people. Now, what's interesting about this sermon, we've read examples of Paul's sermons. We have portions, probably not the whole thing, almost certainly not the whole thing, but we have portions of about three sermons already that we've read of the Apostle Paul. Those sermons were primarily spoken to a Jewish audience. This sermon is the first one that we have recorded that is written or spoken to a Gentile audience. And so here he is, he's in the uh, Areopagus speaking to these philosophers of ancient uh, Athens and we can make some comparisons of the way the things that Paul says that are similar and those things that Paul says that that are kind of different or unique in this particular setting and so with his Jewish listeners Paul would turn to the scriptures and he would begin to explain from those scriptures who Christ was and how Jesus fulfilled those prophecies and was the Christ. What we see here is Paul takes a different path to get to Jesus as he addresses this primarily Gentile crowd. And so notice in verse 22, he begins by establishing a point of commonality, something that he has in common with his listeners. He says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way that you are very religious. And so rather than beginning with the scriptures, which these Gentiles probably didn't know and certainly didn't believe in, instead, he begins with a point of interest of theirs, which is their religiousness. That's the common error. Paul's like, all right, I can work with that. And that's where he begins, because Paul was certainly interested in an otherworldly God, even as so many in Athens were. So notice this about the Apostle Paul. He didn't expect them to be in the same place that he was. For Paul, he revered the scriptures, but he didn't expect that they necessarily would. Neither does he come at them in a way that would immediately alienate them. And so imagine if this sermon began this particular way. I noticed that there's a whole lot of dumb in this town, and I've come to set it straight. Well, that would alienate his listeners. And they, some of them wouldn't continue to listen past that opening sentence. Notice how Paul begins. He says, I perceive that you are a very religious people. Again, as I said earlier, it was said that Athens had more idols than people. And that there are some in ancient writings that said the people of Athens were the most religious people of the ancient world. And Paul, he picks up on that. And he uses that as his point of connection with his audience. He says, I perceive that you, are a that you are religious. And he'll explain why he perceives that. There's a couple of, of uh, styles of preaching. There's probably lots of styles of preaching. But one is to preach against something. The other is to preach for something. You, you could call that negative preaching, preaching against something, and positive preaching, preaching for something. Paul is going to choose the latter. He's going to preach for something. 
And so he connects with his listeners. He begins with by saying, I notice that you're very religious. And the, re the, the thing in particular that he notices about them, they have thousands of idols and all of that. But if Paul's not going to come and say, well, let me tell you why Zeus is dumb. And let me tell you why Aphrodite is dumb. And let me tell you why this one is dumb and this one is dumb. What he sees is, I notice that you have an altar here, in actuality altars here, to the unknown God. And his positive preaching style, I'm not talking about like positive and encouraging, I'm not talking about that, but he, arguing for something, he says, I want to introduce you to that God that you don't know. Are you with me? You, you see what Paul is doing here? I appreciate this about him. And so, again, he says, look, I can work with that. The God that you don't know, I'd like to tell you about him. And Paul, he reasons that these, these people, look, they, they admit they believe in the existence of a god or gods, an otherworldly being. And secondly, they admit that they don't know this particular god. There was a plague, I think it was in the, not plague, but like the sickness thing that went around in uh, Athens in like the 500s or something. And the people convinced themselves the reason why this thing is going around and it's killing a bunch of animals and some people and things like that is because there's a deity that is angry with us. And so what they did was they, they let out these goats and stuff, sheep I think or goats or something, to kind of roam the city of Athens. And many of them were sick and they keeled over and died certain places around the city. And they took that, the people of Athens, took that as a place we need to build an altar here to this God who we don't know, the God who's angry with us and killing people and killing animals. And so there were these altars all over the city that were inscribed to the unknown God. Does that make sense? I hope I explained it clear enough here. And so Paul saw a whole bunch of these there, or at least one that he saw there, and he said, you know what, I want to introduce you to that God that you admit that you don't know. And from there, it would just be very normal to continue on and explain Jesus. When I was teaching we had what was called the, the hook and hold. We have a bunch of teachers here. You remember the hook and hold? That's what you, you probably call it something else because that's what they do in education. It's change the names of things and put out a new seminar or whatever. And so the hook and hold was you come in, you intrigue your audience, your students there, and they're like, oh, this is going to be the greatest lesson I've ever heard. And then you, you hold them with the information, the hook and hold. And that's what Paul did. He hooked them with, I see that you have these things to the unknown God. And then he was able to hold them as he preached to them and explained to them. Essentially, they're saying, hmm, this is interesting. I'd like to hear a little more of what this guy has to say. We can outline Paul's sermon in this way. First, he's going to talk about this unknown God being the creator of all things. Second, he's going to explain how the unknown God is the sustainer, holds it together, all things. Third, he'll point out how he is the ordainer, of all things. And then finally, he'll kind of bring his message to a close by arguing that every man has a responsibility to this God. That's kind of the outline here that he has. In verse 24, he begins with the first two points, the creator and sustainer of all things. It says this, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So the beginning of that verse there, the creator of all things, the end of that little verse or verses there, he is the stainer of all things. He himself gives uh, life, breath, and everything to mankind. His point will be that he is the one that made the world for all mankind, and that he doesn't need anything from all mankind. Again, verse 25, he gives all mankind life and breath and everything. And if he has given to mankind those most basic of needs, the vital needs that we have of life and breath and so on, well, what possibly could he need from man? The reason why there were all these statues to the deities there scattered throughout Athens is because they believed that those deities needed humanity to make them a statue so that the people could probably worship those deities. And Paul intervenes and he says, what possibly, I'm paraphrasing, but what possibly could th this deity that I'm telling you about need from any one of us? Nothing, his point is going to be. He doesn't need anything from us. 
these people are religious, but their religion is askew. And Paul's going to correct them. Paul's going to speak to them about the God who created everything, yet remains distinct from creation, not pantheism. Paul tells them about the God that was bigger than any temple that man could build or any service that man could do. That's the complete opposite of what these folks in Athens believed, religiously believed. From there, Paul's going to transition in verse 26, going from creator, going from sustainer, to going to the ordainer of all, of thing, of all things. He says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. He's sovereign over these things, in charge of these things. He ordains these things. Verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. What is man and woman's purpose here on the earth? To be in right relationship with God. Ordained by God, that's what he requires of humanity. That's a very different understanding than the one that the Epicureans held than the one that the Stoics held. And so he's the creator, he's the sustainer, he's the ordainer. Paul's challenging every one of their thoughts. You guys are mistaken on each one of these things. Let me explain how. And now finally, he makes his point. He makes his way, and this is the thing, he makes his way to Jesus by arguing that since the Lord created all things, sustains all things, ordains all things, the natural response of humanity is that they should seek this unknown God, starting in verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, that's Adam, having determined allotted periods and boundaries, verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he's not very far from them. I might summarize Paul's argument by using that familiar phrase that some of you have heard that says that that. All of humanity has a God-sized hole that only God can fill. Have you ever heard kind of an expression similar to that? That's what Paul is getting at. All of humanity is created to know God, to seek God, and he's not very far away, and yet does not have that relationship with God. And because he doesn't have this relationship with God, what does he do? He builds a statue here and a temple there, and he brings an offering to this, and he's trying. Paul says, what you did in ignorance... I'm going to explain to you. And he uses this deity that they had to the unknown God to do so. God has created all of us with a longing which is eternal. The book of Ecclesiastes says it this way. God has made everything beautiful for its time and he has planted eternity in the human heart. Everyone has a need for God. Now, that in and of itself, that's not enough for us to be in right relationship with God, to have a saving knowledge of God. But at the very least, that hole in our hearts should get us seeking. That's Paul's point here. And to make his point, he notice what he does. He quotes two Greek poets. The first one, he says, in him said, in him we live, we move, and we have our being. And the second one said, and we are indeed his offspring. Those two poets, uh, Epin... Let me see, Epimadiades or something, Epimanides is the first one. He wrote in the 7th century B.C., so a long time ago, but his writings continued to be significant to the people of Greece and particularly the people of Athens. Interesting, Paul will quote him again in the book of 1 Timothy. The other one is a fellow by the name of Aratus who lived about 300 years earlier. Now, both of those men, those Greek poets, were not talking about Jehovah God. They were talking about the supreme deity of the Greek people, which was Zeus. Now, Paul's talking about the supreme deity of all the world. And so Paul says, all right, you know what? I'm going to take what they said about the supreme deity, and I'm going to apply it to the supreme deity. And he connects with them by using even their their own things that they say in their community, and every one of them would have known. Not because everything they said was true, but because this particular thing they said was true. He goes on in verse 29, he says, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. A moment earlier, Paul argued that since we are the offspring of God, we are responsible to God. His point here is, if we are responsible to God, 
well, then it's imperative that we have right ideas about God. And those right ideas require that we not reduce God to silver and to stone and to marble and all these other things here. We have to think rightly about God and worship God as he has informed us he is to be worshipped. Paul brings his sermon to a head. Look at verse 30. Remember, the, the fourth point was man's responsibility. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has affixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. For thousands of years, the Gentile world, much of the Jewish world, they erred in this regard, in their knowledge of God and how he was to be worshipped. Paul, he describes that as living in a time of ignorance. But with the coming of Christ, Paul makes clear, look, no one needs to be ignorant any longer, especially those that are sitting here now listening to the Apostle Paul, because what can be known of God has been made evident by God, and because it has, it's time, look what he says there in verse 30, it is time for all people everywhere to repent. Now, when you hear that, what do you think? A lot of times when we hear the word repent, we think, well, we better, we got to start changing our behavior. We got to repent of our bad behavior and start to do good things. We often think of repentance as the turning from bad deeds so that we can begin to do good things. Not, not quite so. Now, I will say this, oftentimes turning from bad deeds is the result of repentance. But the idea of repentance has much more to do with what's going on in the heart and mind of an individual. The idea of repentance is thinking differently about something, thinking differently than we thought before. It's a call to new thinking based upon the entrance of new facts. And so these people there in Athens, they had these wrong ideas. They were thinking incorrectly. Paul entered in, introduced new facts to these individuals, and is now calling them to think differently. He's calling them to repent. Paul's listeners previously thought that there were many gods, all of which needed men to build them a temple or an altar so that they could be properly worshipped and magnified. What Paul has just realized, uh, revealed is the error of that thinking. And now he calls them, based on this new thinking, to a new way of thinking and subsequently acting. Paul recognized these philosophers had to change their ideas about God. They had to move on from their errors and their mistakes and instead embrace the God that was revealed in his holy word. And that just makes sense, doesn't it? In, in the sense of if new information is given to you, well, then you respond to that new information. You kind of change the direction that you were going as you go forward. Paul calls them to repentance. He also presents them a second reason why they need to respond why they need to repent, why they need to change their thinking. He says, because he, God, has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man that he has appointed. Paul is saying, look, this is an urgent message that you need to respond to. First, because you have new information, and based on that new information, you need to respond. Second, because there is a judgment coming for those that don't respond. God may have overlooked your ignorance in the past, but he will not overlook it going forward. The truth of who God is has been revealed. And these people that, Paul is, that are listening to Paul will be held accountable, and they need to respond. May I just say, just as every one of us in this room listening will be held accountable to what has been revealed to us. So Paul has trans transitioned his message to Jesus. He began with, I hear you guys are really religious. Now he's at the point of transitioning to Jesus. He hasn't mentioned Jesus' name yet, but this is the first time in the message where Paul is introducing Jesus. He's going to be building up here to Jesus. He says he is the one that will judge the world in righteousness. He is the one that has been appointed by God to do so. And then at the end of that verse, he says, and he is the one that God raised from the dead as evidence of his authority to do so, to judge the world. He argues that the judgment is coming. And I suppose right here is where Paul was going to say, and let me tell you his name. 
His name is Jesus. He lived 15 years ago in the area of Galilee, and he would begin to tell the, the specific, clear story of who Jesus is. He would lay out the glorious gospel to his listeners, but as you look at the text, does he do that? Unfortunately, he doesn't do that. He doesn't get a chance to, because as he is built to this particular place, he's now interrupted by his listeners. As he mentions the word resurrection, anastasis, Verse 32, it points out, now when they heard that, the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Because again, they didn't believe there was anything beyond this life. This is it. Live it up here on this earth. So some began to mock. Oh, you're one of those people that naively believe in you know, another world to come. And so they began to make fun of him. They began to mock him. Others noticed. They said, oh, that's interesting. Let's hear it. Now, is that what Paul was looking for? People to, to respond and say, yeah, sure, you can come back tomorrow if you want. We'll listen. No. Paul, he just said to these people, you need to respond to what I just said to you. And these thinking, eh, it's kind of good. Not so bad. Some mock him. Some are rather indifferent. And so verse 33, and so Paul, he went out from their midst. He had failed to win his audience, which is kind of hard to do when they don't let you finish. But he had failed to win his audience here, and so he, he went out from them. Now, that is not to say that no one responded to his teaching. Look at verse 34. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius. What was he? He was an Areopagite. There was a select group that made up the the people of the Areopagus that participated, they, I think the number I read was something like 30, 32 people. And then there were others that gathered around and just listened. But the people, the Areopagites, they're the ones that participated in the debate. And there was one man in that group, a Dionysius, who responded. We also learned there was a woman named Damaris and others that with, were with them. So three, four, five people or so. Some people responded. The whole city may not have. But that doesn't mean that Paul's little time here in Athens was a waste because there were some that were responding. And I'm sure Paul left there and said, I would love it if the whole city could, but at least there were some. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for that. And Lord, how our hearts would love to see a revival go forth in our land and hundreds and thousands of people, more than we can keep track of, responding and coming to the Lord. But Lord, we, we also want to have hearts that don't miss the miracle of even when one person comes to the Lord. Like this guy Dionysius and Damaris and some of the others that aren't mentioned by name. And so give us a heart like the Apostle Paul to be supremely confident, even with the smartest people in the world, to preach the truth of Jesus and the resurrection and Lord, we pray that you would give us success in our endeavors as well, that people would respond and they would believe. And so thank you for this scripture today. Lord, apply it to our hearts as we go forth from here, we ask in your name. Mm -hmm.